Hi everyone, and welcome to the Morrowcast! The Years of Lead pod has officially been taken over by Morrowcast. All Aldo, all the time. This is where we talk about Aldo Moro, his life and times, his untimely and tragic death at the hands of terrorist assassins, and his contributions to the milieu of moral philosophy in the 20th century, along with his legacy as a statesman and symbol of the First Italian Republic. It's difficult to really describe the importance of Aldo Moro to Italian society today, let alone to the Italy of his time. To many, he represents nay, embodies the tragedy of the First Republic itself, its triumphs and failures, its corruption and piety, its closed political system, and its attempts to forge an open society. The contradictions that erupted across Italy during the 1970s were really alive within Moro's own political philosophy, as we'll see. His approach to jurisprudence and democracy sort of suited his own Herculean efforts to keep his own party together and the country itself from crumbling. During a period of massive economic restructuring and social disintegration, from his humble origins in southern Italy, Moro would become a real giant of world politics, a titanic force without whose presence it was believed parliamentary democracy would simply unravel. I've read a number of books on his life and efforts, including his own deep and prolific philosophical writings and biographies and diaries of party colleagues like Giulio Andreotti, and I'd venture to say that that appraisal is not that far off. For the upper echelon of the Christian Democrats, a true political class that rotated cabinet seats, ministerial positions, and high-ranking political offices in complicated games of careerist jockeying, the most important thing in Italian life was the stability of the government, and that relied entirely, in their minds, on the primacy of the Christian Democrats. But Moro wasn't born into the same social strata as many of his fellow political leaders. He was born in Salento. If Italy's a boot, Salento is the peninsula at the heel of the boot. It is the heel of the boot. It's the Meridionale, Italy's hot and slow-moving south, the southernmost peninsula in the region known as Puglia. Italian writer Guido Piovani once described Salento as, quote, land of mirages, windy. It's not the world of yesterday, but it is not yet the world of today. Inhabited since, at least, the Bronze Age by tribes, the area is known for its brilliant blue waters and local stone cutting. It is very remote, and despite becoming a tourist hotspot in recent decades, in the early 20th century it was real far away from the modern world. Aldo was born in a small town called Malie in the province of Lecce. At 9 a.m. on September 23, 1916, he was part of a younger generation than the figures who would go on to create the Christian Democrats, people like Alcide de Gasperi, who had participated in the political turmoil of the liberal monarchist state and De Gasperi even had debated Mussolini during the days of the Christian Democrats' predecessor, the Popular Party, before the dark era of the fascist regime. 
Moro's father, Renato, was from Ugento and acted as a ministerial inspector as well as an educational director, while his mom, Fida, taught elementary school. They lived on the first floor of a humble house owned by a local barber. They moved to Tarento in 1923, when his elementary schooling began. And he studied, not in Rome or Milan or Turin, but at the Department of Law in the Royal University of Bari, the capital city of Puglia in the nation's south. So when Moro was there, the university was actually named after Benito Mussolini. Now it's named after Aldo Moro. The exams he took at first were in constitutional law, an almost absurd class for students undergoing the rigors of scholastic education in the 13th year of the fascist era 1935. Nevertheless, Moro received excellent marks in subsequent exams, graduating in 1938 at the age of about 21 years old, just days ahead of the regime's passage of the notorious racial laws. The following year, Moro became president of the Italian Catholic University Federation, FUCI. It's there that he begins his political experience. I've seen this described as deprovincialization of Aldo Moro, rising in 1942 to become president of Catholic graduates. And remember, this is the early 1940s when university training meant you were one of the elites who was expected to lead the country. In 1940, he's joined at the editorial of the publication Azione Fucine, a sort of radical Catholic political journal, by a young Roman kid three years younger than himself. And this guy, 22 years old, wearing thick glasses, had a sharp aspect that made it clear he was a man of incisive intelligence, even at that young stage. His name was Giulio Andreotti, And his incisive commentary and diaries about his relationship with Aldo Moro would become very, very fascinating for future historians, such as myself, a lay historian. However, I'm going to use some of those diaries in this here podcast episode. So hang on. Here it would seem that Moro had a moderating effect on Andreotti, perhaps, his slow pace, his tendency to want to see how things played out, and his interest in participating in Catholic action without indicating too much of a direct and provocative intervention. All those things may have assisted the journal in showing a more cautious face during stormy times. In 1943, he met Rino Formica, a formidable intellect from Bari, through a professor of religion, Monsignor Michele Mincusi, later the Archbishop of Lecce. Their friendship would last over time, as they both worked within their respective political parties for reform and collaboration. During this period, Moro co-founded a journal called Rasenia with other Bari colleagues, writing articles opposing fascist ideology. As the civil war spread throughout northern Italy, Moro attacked, quote, pseudo-democratic disguises of some in the resistance, signaling his fidelity to the left. He exclaimed, quote, the gravest sacrifice awaits us, that of proclaiming ourselves free for the convenience of the world, when we don't feel we are free. Our place is in the opposition. Our task is beyond politics. We have no aspirations to rule. We don't want power because it scares us. It could make us conservatives too. Conservatives, if nothing else, of a petty and personal freedom. It could accustom us to compromise. It could teach us fiction. 
And we want to be free, free of all the freedom of the spirit. We believe we constitute a perennial reserve against the despair of skepticism. Precisely because we believe in the truth, we can become ruthless critics of all false beliefs. He almost sounds like a Marxist there. Collecting the lectures written between 1942 to 1943 for posterity, his family would later posthumously release Moro's moral philosophy in the form of a lengthy book. And I think it's important to dwell for a moment on his political philosophy in order to understand their subtle critiques of the fascist state under the fascist regime and their indication of Christian democratic politics before the party existed. So, they show that there's a really practical side to Moro's philosophy. His writings hew closely to the Aristotelian notions of a kind of bottom-up political society based on each individual in relation to one another on the basis of values, co-creating networks of affinity, commerce, and thought, which produce social values ultimately manifest in law. For Moro, law reifies a state that always already exists as virtually synonymous with society itself. For some, this sense of society and the state would come close to fascism's idea of the total state, but he also explicitly argued against this, hoping instead that the formation and reformation of social values, again, emerging juridically through legal jurisprudence, would maintain a kind of dynamism a plasticity and resilience of a democratic order in which the freedom of the individual lies in their ability to pursue what they value in accordance with conscientious work, always with the truth in mind. For Moro, the individual's personal success relied absolutely on the state's capacity to protect the individual, which in turn relied on each person to stand up in a universal struggle for the law. He writes, quote, fighting for the law means giving historically effective, good God, historically effective efficacy to ethical values which develop in the individual conscience so that when they come together in the universal, as necessarily happens, when one is on the truly ethical level, they give rise to a juridical standard perfectly consistent with the collective ethical conscience and therefore to a just law. Now, (laughs) these are really dense writings and they tend to go way uphill before they kind of ski back down, so uh, bear with me here. Law for Moro is then a kind of realization of history through what he calls quote, the ethical process of the spirit, giving rise to its intelligent form, something that amounts to nothing less than enlightened love. He writes, quote, the human will that realizes ethical values in the world of history must be understood precisely as a working principle of love, of which category the incomplete conception must be overcome, which presents it mostly as a renunciation or a a generous gift, while it, in its deepest truth, expresses as completely as possible all the moments which have gradually and certainly with the brevity imposed by the subject we're dealing with hinting at, that is, the process of the making of the spirit as energy expressed 
in adherence to an intimate truth which represents its raison d'etre. So Moro basically harkens back even to Montesquieu here, evoking the spirit of the law as a kind of collective energy amounting not to a negative freedom or a restriction, but to an abundance, in Moro's case, of, of spiritual love expressed in social terms, which he calls active love. So for Moro, in his vision of the world, the Italian Republic had first to be a moral republic, a republic based on sound premises, dignity, and respect, but more than anything, on love. The raison d'etre that he represents is, in the final instance, something that perhaps ironically approaches utilitarianism. He insists that his own moral philosophy is the life of the spirit, which aligns with the intention of, quote, the ethical law as a determinant of life, developments such as to ensure the greatest possible enjoyment or the greatest possible benefit to the individual subject or to society, possibly having regard to a graduation of pleasures understood as more or less noble. But even philosophies apart from utilitarianism and hedonism, which so resolutely accentuate the principle, posit the identity of virtue and happiness and giving life to a vocation toward truth and goodness, they do not fail to recognize that life tends toward the full satisfaction of itself, in a word, towards happiness. Happiness is something that later commentators would say Moro uses a lot. So it's in a sense almost Jeffersonian here, in keeping with the movement from Locke to Shaftesbury in the Enlightenment. So Here's where Moro's commitment to the left wing of the Christian Democrats really comes into play. He does not see the government as a political apparatus meant to ensure the peace and quiet of the good citizenry, a kind of technocratic entity which would serve people by mediating between corporate entities without imposing itself on the daily life of the citizenry. In a sense, he sees the government really as a dutiful servant of the public and of public happiness, an entity that would not just mediate, but take the side of the whole of the public in attempting to extend the best possible life to each and every person. Deeply consensus-seeking, this could mean mass culture, rock and roll, modern cinema, and the free press, all of society engaged together in this great project of the Republic, even when it's unfairly raking him over the coals with accusations of communist proclivities. Indeed, during the screening of Pasolini's Mama Roma much later, Aldo would sit next to the extremely controversial movie director and poet, an unflinching communist provocateur of the masses, which does show the degree to which Moro valued tolerance. Yet Moro would also insist in those days, in the 40s, under Mussolini's regime, that the basic and fundamental unit of the state is the family. Quote, To talk about the state as a social experience is as good as to talk about the family, because without it, the state would not exist. Indeed, we already know that only marriage as love that only marriage as the constant essential nucleus of the family is capable of perpetually generating life. 
The broadest social experience, which is organized in the state, cannot therefore subsist if it does not arise from the family, preserve it, respect it, and, so to speak, model itself on it. Vain and therefore absurd is every attempt to replace the family with another form of sexual union which serves to give the state its human substance without going through the family. A vain attempt because here there is no love for life and for truth, and therefore life, instead of flourishing, becomes sad and fails. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of Moro's liberal political philosophy, though, is his assessment of the church in those days. Always an incredibly devout Catholic, Moro viewed the church as a seminal institution in political life, and during the fascist regime, he rejected the idea of a secular state. You might make fun of me here uh, for finding this surprising. After all, They're called the Christian Democrats, and that doesn't exactly connote a secular party. There were, certainly, secular parties in Italy, most notably the Socialists and the Communists, but while Moro would collaborate with them, of course, his faith drew him to the Christian democracy. However, Moro's understanding of the church was different from most of his colleagues. For Moro, the church wasn't just a religious authority. It was, quote, a juridical order, another truly characteristic expression of ethically ordered social experience. In fact, for Moro, the, quote, state is not only a more restricted social experience than the universal one of the church, but it is, so to speak, qualitatively and essentially different from it. Moro makes that, disti- Moro makes that distinction between secular and transcendent, temporal and ultra-temporal, arguing that, quote, a purely temporal order does not exist, and concluding that, quote, there is no difference between the state and the church as there is between the social experience made in time and for time, albeit with a view to eternity, and that made outside of time, in which, instead, it necessarily takes place. This is where Moro is perhaps at his most totalitarian in those days, but remember that These lectures were produced in the 40s, during the end of the fascist regime, and they therefore can be considered, in a sense, a turn using the acceptable language of a professor under the fascist regime toward a liberal state, but not, it should be noted, a secular one. If we look at Moro's articles in Rasenya, they do tell a slightly different tale from what I can gather. He makes sure to insist, quote, Without politics, man lacks the environment in which to build his world. But if politics wants to be the whole of life, man is finished and life loses its clarity and richness. Beyond politics, there's an immense residue that we still risk wasting. Here, despite the state's combination with society and his moral philosophy, Moro insists that politics are simply one aspect of universal existence, and he goes further in reinforcing that position. Quote, Probably, despite everything, historical evolution will not satisfy our ideal needs. The splendid promise, which seems contained in the intrinsic strength and beauty of those ideals, will not be kept. It is a pain that does not subside, if not a little, when it is confessed to the souls who know 
how to understand, or sung in art, or when the strength of a faith or beauty dissolve that anxiety and restore peace. Perhaps man's destiny is not to fully realize justice, but to be perpetually hungry and thirsty for justice. But it is always a great destiny. So, Moro's writings, either pseudonymously in Rosenia or publicly in his lectures, indicate two things at once. A tremendous hope in the liberal movement of history and the representation of the human spirit by laws in the form of a state as a sort of sublimation of human love. And the simultaneous doubt and anxiety about the fulfillment of the human mission towards peace and happiness. The universal struggle of the human spirit, then, is for justice. In the period between the fall of the regime and the first elections, people didn't really know what to make of this provincial intellectual. Was he a communist? A kind of everyman? He was talking about Christian Democrats joining in coalition with the socialists. And how could that be possible? The bishop called on him to join the Christian Democrats, and he gained his membership card. He was elected a representative for the Bari area and sent as a delegate to the Constituent Assembly to help forge the constitutional basis for the new parliamentary republic. For the 30-year-old jurist, it was an opportunity to network and to immerse himself fully in the social experience that he idolized, the formation not only of a new government, but of a new state. This was the first subject he studied in law school, the thing that would mark his rise to national prominence and cement his position of notoriety. Lawyer Carlo Forcella later wrote, quote, I remember him in those extraordinary months, animated by great emotion. I would like to say, with the same emotion that others, 20 years later, many committed lay Catholics felt on the first day of the Second Vatican Council. So there's almost a religious spirit from Moro's constituent progress. And during this period, the Christian Democrats are led, of course, by Alcide de Gasperi, a venerable and seasoned political centrist with experience dating back to before World War I. One of the most active of the Christian Democrat delegation, though, is a priest named Giuseppe Dossetti, a Genoese man who had grown up through the Azione Cattolica experience. He takes a degree in law and even joined the fascist party before turning to anti-fascism and joining the resistance. Despite his professed nonviolence, Dossetti had actually presided over the Committee of National Liberation in one of the reddest and bloodiest areas of partisan conflict during the Civil War, Reggio Emilia. Moro was drawn to Dossetti, whose charisma attracted other men who would also become prominent politicians and public figures of the post-war period, including Amintore Fanfani and the future mayor of Florence, Giorgio Lapira. Together, these socially-minded figures, although Fanfani was socially also on the, on the right, created the Civitas Umana, a group that would insist a group that would insert itself into the moral order on the side of the poor. Moro would later distance himself from Dossetti, who created controversy through his denunciation of Italy's ascension to NATO, but the influence nevertheless remained. Dossetti was a sort of weird mix between an enthusiastic 
and a reluctant politician. He abandoned politics twice, finally leaving for good in 1951, despite his own popularity. And during the Second Vatican Council, he immersed himself in the endeavors, helping to move it towards a more progressive platform. Although Moro was one of the most respected and listened to men in the Constituent Assembly, the Christian Democratic elites weren't enamored with this humble man from the provinces who wrote barnstormers about human salvation of the struggle for justice. They were creating a bureaucratic state, a state that could extract the masses from the political apparatus in the same way a hydrologist worries about removing water from the city. I think Moro's affinity for anti-fascist social Catholicism, the density of his liberal political philosophy, and his general optimism helped move the process forward. As a deputy from Bari, Moro was appointed Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs. But when Dossetti abandoned politics the second time in 1951, Moro renounced his post in solidarity. In Forcella's words, quote, the years between 1951 and 1954 were the years of silence, of his reflection on his own experience as it had developed up to that moment. The situation had become more difficult already from the middle of the constituent phase. I would say that his contribution to the Constitution was that of a man who felt strongly that he was doing his duty. His role was also one of mediation and understanding of the many lay needs that had to find expression in the Constitutional Charter. In fact, Moro was always a bit torn over politics. His mother had actually hoped that he would remain in academia, and several times during his career he came close to leaving the political world entirely. But it was also something he deeply believed in, and his faith was contagious. The eminent trade union leader of the Communist Party, Luciano Lama, later recalled a conversation with Moro in which the latter said, quote, The workers are also supported by values, by strong ideas. You have a utopia. Yours is a utopia. But it is a utopia that consoles you, that helps you to live and fight because it promises ever more desirable goals before you. We, too have something which we do not call utopia, but faith. But in short, there's a sort of a kinship between your utopia and our faith. Moro and his colleagues believed that at the core of Christian democracy was the saving grace of the human spirit, the spiritual mission of, hu of history, and the only way toward guarding the sacred place of Italy in the world from a kind of medieval decadence and degeneration. Thus, the Christian Democrats represented modernity and tradition, faith in law and faith in the church, a humanist interpretation of the individual, and a deeply Catholic assessment of loyalty and creed. Always on the left flank of the party, Moro's Christian democracy asserted a deeply democratic interpretation of everyday life and the individual's condition of belonging in the mass culture of the nation-state. Some even compare him to a kind of chiliastic millenarian, a man whose total faith in democracy led him to view history as a movement towards universal freedom through which the state and society would converge into an integral system of values. 
Indeed, it would seem that at his most optimistic, Moreau believed in a kind of progress towards a kind of complete and perfect democracy. In 1955, Moro would be appointed for the first time to a ministerial post, a sign of his arrival in the political elite of Italy. He had a dark, double-breasted suit cut by Randolfo Conti, a tailor in the Prati district of Rome, which would be his trademark for the remaining 23 years. A humble man, but tall man, he tended to walk with a slight slouch, perhaps to reduce any sense of obtrusion or imposition. But he was very careful about formality. And I think he may have seen it as a means of maintaining social order based on merit, something extremely vital for the Apulian jurist. When his spokesman, Guerzoni, came to work with a crewneck shirt instead of the requisite collar, something perhaps indicative of the fashion statements connoting relaxed moral standards and less than fully conscientious endeavors. Moro commented, I wonder how happy the children will be to have such a young father. He'd criticized totalitarianism even in the final years of the regime, and of course he was a liberal moral philosopher, but he still viewed formality conservatively as a mark of maturity and cohesion the latter being one of his most essential guiding values. One of the epithets he would utter during times of disappointment or stress was frametato, which means broken into pieces, a sense of things falling apart and of the whole being fractured into non-communicative and incommensurate, irreconcilable shards. In 1958, Moro, as Minister of Education now, introduced civics programs for Italian schools to increase the desire to be a citizen, in his words, among the youth. He declared, quote, It is convenient for the purpose of civic education to show the student the free flow of individual wills into collective action. Even if all the manifestations of social life do not have a hold on him, there are some that strongly stimulate his interest. Teamwork, for example, has a strong attraction in this age, so the organization of working groups for investigations and environmental research satisfies the desire to see in action the multiplication of one's own action in the convergence of common intentions and efforts and reveals real aspects of human life. Through the use, then, of the very organization of school life as a lively experience of social relations and practical exercise of rights and duties, it will, be, it will gradually become clear that social life is not a distant and indifferent activity in which only adults have an interest, and that the civic spirit, far from any conventionalism, reflects life in its most conscious and most worthy form. This was a period of the economic boom and the triumphalism of the center-right faction of the Christian Democrats. Here, Moro had been not a marginal politician, but a politician who did not hold the weight of the party in his hands. All this changed the next year when the party entered a period of phenomenal crisis. The exuberance of the 50s showed signs of slowing down, and elections suggested that these centrist forces would not be able to hold a clear majority without the intercession of other coalition forces. 
the most important being the communists, socialists, and the fascists of the Movimento Sociale Italiano. In a speech delivered on October 3rd called The State and Human Value, Moro returned to his discourse on the state, qualifying it as, quote, founded on the prestige of every man and which guarantees the prestige of every man. Here, it would seem he was, in a sense, warning against the disgrace of forming a coalition with the Movimento Sociale Italiano to preserve the state, despite his absolute commitment to the state's stability. More than anything, though, he was trying to remind his fellow Christian Democrats of the vitality and importance of the state itself. The state, he says, belonged to, quote, every man, of all men, of the whole man. Mino Martinazzoli argues here that where Moro is urgent and at his most statist, he also recognizes the limits of the state. In other words, that liberation comes through the state, but also may be in a form liberation from the state. Perhaps one might understand this as an internal limit or threshold in which the state can be improved in a process through which its institution as a physical limit is reduced. So, you always find, with Moro, the highest articulation of a positive aspiration mixed with an obvious anxiety that might even propel the loftiness of the goal, while also adding some tincture of concessions to lived reality, like a deeply spiritual negotiation of everyday life. The contradiction would be enough to make him want to give up and consign himself to the ivory tower, but perhaps it's that very humility and that desire to set his goals into practice for the good of the underserved that makes him stay in the game. In his speech to the National Congress of the Democrazia Cristiana in Florence a few weeks later, he clarified that the extension of that state should ensure Quote, no person on the margins, no person excluded from the vitality and value of social life, no gray areas in a gradual, harmonious, universal rhythm of ascension, nothing that's dead, nothing that's doomed, nothing that's outside the lifeline of society. He added in a statement ripe with portentousness, the government faces, quote, the enormous problem of the full introduction of the masses into the state. The gradual, harmonious, universal rhythm of ascension, you say? The introduction of the masses into the state? I mean, nobody talks like this, right? But Moro did, and it rendered him vulnerable to a lot of criticism that he was just full of all of these lofty abstractions that didn't have basis in material life. In particular, his assertion of faith in 1959 in, quote, building Europe by overcoming the obstacles that still exist as the greatest political act to which we are called. So, French President Charles de Gaulle deplored the idea of an integrated Europe, calling instead for France as a strong nation and third force against the bipolar East-West order. Nevertheless, Moro grounded his call for European integration on the, on the basis, of course, of, quote, a unitary political and moral reality. Classic Aldo. In the words of professor of diplomatic history Carola Meneguzzi Rostagni, quote, 
Putting the accent on moral and political values, for Moro, Europe was solidarity. It was a voice against war, a voice against the weight of armaments, hunger and underdevelopment, against iniquity, against everything that could prevent free and fruitful contacts between all men. Solidarity would have saved the European countries, ensured peace and balance in Europe, and offered a model to the world. Moro's comments on Europe, dating as far back as 1959, were of course futile at the time. In 1960, with the support of the MSE, the Christian Democrats were elected into power again, led by the ill-fated government of Fernando Tambroni. Moro was sort of shouldered out of the center-right-led government and would not return to a ministerial post until he became prime minister three years later. Tambroni had been minister of the interior, giving him jurisdiction over the Carabinieri and the Office of Confidential Affairs. There, he developed a serious reputation for intrigue, and Moro allegedly fell under his allies' surveillance during his brief tenure. Moro understood this, and is said to have activated his own allies to surveil the group that was surveilling him leading to a funny situation in which Moro's entourage was always followed by two separate entourages. Under Tambroni, the MSC decided to hold their important annual meeting in Genoa, a strongly anti-fascist city, sparking massive protests that quickly spread to other cities. Police opened fire in Reggio Emilia, killing five protesters on July 7th, and three were killed in Sicily in separate incidents. Protests threatened to spiral out of control when a temporary truce was called and Christian Democrat parliamentarians withdrew support for Tambroni's regime, causing its collapse. For the ensuing three years, as the economy stumbled into a balance of payments crisis, the Christian Democrats failed to reestablish a government. Amid the chaotic shuffle of short-lived coalitions, the president of the Republic, Antonio Segni, asked the Carabinieri General Giovanni De Lorenzo to develop a strategy that would swiftly establish a new political order by detaining left-wing figures deemed provocateurs and removing them to a secret base while declaring the transition from parliamentary to presidentialist republic. In the nick of time, however, in 1963, Aldo Moro was able to broker a coalition with the Socialist Party in order to rescue the Republic. It was the beginning of the so-called center-left formula, which would take forward the momentum of this state and effectively lead a significant and progressive transformation of Italian social life going into the 1970s. During his first term as prime minister, he attempted to act in accordance with his philosophy, saying in 1965, we want to include everyone, something that certainly raised eyebrows for a lot of Christian Democrats who certainly did not want to include the Communist Party. <laughs> the following year, Moro echoed this, declaring, we want to place all citizens in the state, in positions of responsibility. Perhaps incredibly, Moro's government held for five full years, an astoundingly long time for an Italian government of that era. Throughout this period, those who had strategized the transition to presidentialism were actually really disappointed by Moro's huge success, and he would become, along with his colleague Mariano Rumor, the bane of their existence and a target for their attacks. Where most of the political class acted like the student protests of 1967 were crazy, Moro said, quote, 
Before condemning young people for asking us for change, let's try to understand. He addressed young people in 1968 with the words, We have faith in you, which by now we can understand as carefully balanced within the lexicon of Moro's political theory. That faith was, for him, something like a utopianism, a belief that individuals following the truth of their values in the relationships that form social life will bring people together in a democratic state. Just as the major progressive movements of Italy's late 60s and 70s were gaining ground, Moro lost his government, leading to the reassertion of the center-left through his colleague Mariano Rumor. But that government crumbled after just a year, and centrist Emilio Colombo took over, followed by Giulio Andreotti, his former co-editor. Those years, from 1970 to 1974, marked a very tumultuous time in Moro's life, where he raised his voice from the opposition in support of the efforts of marginalized people throughout Italy. In 1969, at the Christian Democratic Congress, Moro returned to his earlier statements about the introduction of the masses into the state. Moro embraced the changes happening in Italian social life. He insisted, quote, Italian society is on the move. He declared that, quote, it claims its autonomy, he went so far as to note that, quote, it recognizes itself in its own centers of proposal and decision. For Moro, the Christian Democrats needed to empower society, not hoard power technocratically. Political power, he states, restores many of its prerogatives to society. According to Sergio Mattarella, who would later become and is now president of Italy, quote, this statement of his made in 1969 is very modern, even for today, and I recall the regret that this political vision of extraordinary, of extraordinary lucidity was a minority political line in his party. He was against the weird stance of fellow Christian Democrats who either shrunk from taking a clear position on divorce or even sided with the MSE's arch-conservatives in opposition. You can see the internal splits in the Christian Democrats with a look at Moro's former co-editor, Giulio Andreotti, who had risen to become the leader of the center-right. Quote, In Piazza del Gesù, Rumor updates on his talks. This is from Giulio's uh, diaries. Quote, Moro believes that the Vatican is in the wrong perspective. In two years, nothing but divorce. We will have the marriage of priests, the pill, etc. If we retreat, not one man, but D.C. will fall. Rumor is willing to retire. But after? Elections? And if the church supports us, we would be more bound. What would happen? Secular front? So Andreotti's not having a great time with divorce. In 1971, President Giuseppe Saragat resigned, leaving open a political crisis over his successor. The Christian Democrat Amintore Fanfani was the favorite of an important area of the Christian Democrat party, including perhaps the industrialist Eugenio Cefis. However, the socialists and communists rejected Fanfani in favor of Moro hoping that he would be positioned at the top of the Italian state. This would have been a popular move, but the post went instead to centrist Giovanni Leoni. By this point, 
Moro was an international sensation. In his diary entry from July 2nd to 5th, 1971, Andreotti notes, quote, In Paris for the Pinay Group, I took advantage of it for two horse racing breaks. I took advantage of two breaks for horse racing. I took advantage of two breaks to go to the racing track in Longchamp, where the horse Aldo Moro took part in the race. He finished ninth out of 11, and I lost 2,000 francs in my bet. Here we get a glimpse at the complicated relationship between Andreotti and Moro. By no means political allies, they butted heads strongly over divorce, but when it came to broader alliances and camaraderie, I think there was some mutual respect, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Despite Moro's struggle against the center-right of his own party, it's really not easy to claim that Moro was on the side that clearly opposed the other. Infighting in the Christian Democrats was extremely common because it was a very broad tent. We tend to break things down between center-right and center-left, but when it comes down to it, Italian political designs were often created on the spur of the moment between whoever had the will to act, and that could look like Moro partnering up with Amintore Fanfani just as much as it could mean Moro partnering up with Mariano Rumor. Alliances were less important and less clear than individuals' decisions on a case-by-case basis, which were influenced by all manner of things. The following year, 1972, Andreotti was set to take over the reins of government. In order to maintain continuity, he offered Moro a ministerial post, again showing the cross-fertilization of factions in the party. In his diary, he admits his frustration. Quote, A last unsuccessful effort to convince Moro. Family reasons, etc. Then he writes me an affectionate letter in which he says that by isolating himself from others, he'll be able to help me better. In fact, Andreotti's diaries sort of show that he was more suspicious, in a sense, of his center-right comrade Fanfani than of Moro, because making arrangements with Moro could certainly set the agenda for the entire party. In this way, Moro, when he's out of power, could behave as a kind of kingmaker. While Andreotti attempted to arrange a stable center-right government with Arnaldo Forlani, he complains in his entry on June 6th to 8th that Fanfani went behind his back, made a secret agreement with Moro, and rearranged the entire organizational chart. Rather than split the party, Andreotti and Forlani co-signed the reorganization. Despite this weird backbiting and chaotic coalition-making within the party, there were serious divisions that highlighted Moro's specific difference. In particular, his relationship with the Arab world was far better than other politicos of the Italian Republic. After Arab countries attacked Israel during Yom Kippur, leading to a big Israeli victory, Andreotti and Moro took opposite sides on the war's outcome. Whereas Moro insisted that Israel return all occupied lands to Arab countries, Andreotti argued that the Golan Heights represented a significant security issue for Israel in light of Syria's hostility. Nevertheless, Moro was able to get along with Israeli diplomats and was never really an obtuse figure. In 1973, Moro went even further in his support for the left. Quote, 
The liberation underway in modern society is expressed in the strong critical charge and innovation carried by young people, by women, by workers, that is, by an age that is itself a future and a hope. There's no doubt that we will be judged on the basis of our ability to interpret these phenomena and take an appropriate position on them. It's not just the right fit that's at stake for our society, but truly it's wealth and quality of life. Because life is not the same, but better if young people can be young, women, women in the fullness of their nature, and workers, citizens in absolute terms to the highest degree of dignity. It was at this point that the coup in Chile took place, and the Communist Party began making overtures under their new leader Enrico Berlinguer to socialists and even Christian Democrats. If the communists could be let into a governing coalition and given ministerial roles, he insisted, they'd behave in a non-dogmatic fashion, they'd not hoard power, and they'd fulfill their duties conscientiously. Moro would be the most interested in this, even more receptive than the Socialist Party, which had been burned by its experiences with the communists in a popular front coalition during 1947. But how could Moro balance his socialist and social democratic allies with the communist entreaties? This was a real puzzle, and many other Christian Democrats didn't want him to sort through it. Andreotti's government fell in 1973, and Mariano Rumor took over. It's really in this period, during the mid-1970s, that Moro shows he's a dedicated party man. As foreign minister, he attends the NATO summit with Rumor, and he even tries to get on good terms with the U.S., while assuring his fellow party leaders of his non-obstruction to their own roles. On November 5th, Andreotti notes that he had a discussion with Henry Kissinger in which the latter, quote, makes a witty but misunderstanding remark. Kissinger told him, quote, I spoke to Moro throughout lunch about Italian democracy, but I only got to 1946. Moro is so subtle that I don't understand why he doesn't go negotiate in the Middle East. With any Italian government and U.S. presidency, Italy-U.S. friendship is secure. This was unsettling a little bit for Andreotti and other party leaders who said they didn't know what Kissinger was talking about. Then again, Kissinger probably didn't know what he was talking about. Here's where it seems that Moro starts acting a little bit more cagey, though. In November, General Vito Micheli of the Military Intelligence Service pays Moro a visit to complain about Andreotti, who had worked with his underling, Gianadelio Maletti, to expose various secrets about Micheli's counterintelligence workings with fascist groups. Seems like Micheli might have spilled the beans on some stuff related to Andreotti to Moro. But Moro always kept his cards close to his vest on that. Andreotti writes in his diary, quote, I know that Moro is in good faith in acknowledging Micheli's reports on the existing discontent with my management. But I'm very proud of never letting myself be deceived by a certain type of character from the services perhaps, and albeit in good faith, but they're authors of many troubles and unable to get to the roots of subversive extremism, which has raised its head too many times. 
This is a time of the Piazza della Loggia bombing and the Italicus bombing, which it seems nearly cost Moro his life. It seems Moro at this point understood the strategy of tension quite well, as developing even before the days of Tambroni, but paying out, playing out along the lines of De Lorenzo's coup attempt and then Michelli's counterintelligence. It's here that he develops something that he'll call the strategy of attention. It comes out, for instance, in 1975, when he declared, quote, that which is underway finds in the condition of youth and women, in the new reality of the world of work, in the richness of civil society, the most striking and emblematic manifestations of a phenomenon which can be alarming in some respects, but is vital without doubt. Remarking not only on students, but on workers and women's struggles, we can see that his faith in the future of humanity carried with it a sense of equality and democratization of society. Once unwilling to entertain any social basis that wasn't founded on the family unit, Moro had by the mid-1970s embraced deep cultural alternatives. Brought back into power as prime minister in 1974, after his colleague Mariano Rumor resigned due to the failure to curtail inflation, Moro promised to pursue the trajectory of the center-left formula. However, the Lockheed Martin scandal was going to break the following year, implicating other center-left partners in bribery. And all of this made things very difficult for Moro, the man at the center of negotiations with the Communist Party over the question of the historic compromise. This frustration did not stop Moro from proclaiming the strategy of attention. In his speech to the Christian Democratic Conference of 1976, Moro declares, quote, The process of liberation that advances at an ever faster pace and goes to the bottom of things with penetrating and unscrupulous daring, this widespread impatience, this ardent expectation, this sacrosanct claim to count everyone equally, well, in all this that is brought about by our civilization, by our democratic civilization, there is no stranger, even in the slightest part. A great task of authentic human promotion lies before us. Moro continued, The issue of rights is central to our political dialectic. Faced with this flourishing, politics must be aware of its limitations, ready to bend to this new reality, which removes the rigidity of the reason of state, to give it the breath of human reason. For this, I will not forget the civic duties. They are in fact two aspects of the same reality. The dialogue proper to a democratic society must be established in the balance of rights and in the structure of justice. A long, painful, historical experience brings to light the revolutionary claims of rights. But no society advances, no society reaches its most radical goals of justice if the rigorous voice of conscience and an authentic sense of the community do not place people in the right relationship of social solidarity. This country will not be saved. The great season of rights will be ephemeral, if a new sense of duty is not born in Italy. In short, the strategy of attention was just a call for his own party to literally pay attention to the streets, 
to social changes and to refuse to get relegated to a position of confused and frustrated conservatives. At the same time, it wasn't a call to blindly support all the protest movements. He was calling on the DC to critically assess the burgeoning social movements without falling into a pattern of recalcitrance. In the words of Giovanni Galloni, former director of the daily Il Popolo, quote, Of this height of concepts, of these open acknowledgments to the values of the contestation of 1968, but also of the explicit denunciation of their limits, the strategy of attention is interwoven, which imposes a change and a renewal of the DC in order to be able to give, together with other governmental political forces, a credible political response to the question that is now turbulently arising from society. This obviously was not the stance of the Communist Party, but it could be aligned closely with what many on the left were similarly thinking. In early February 1975, the DC's National Council concluded its meetings over the subject of the historic compromise. It was very controversial, with Moro in fact taking a critical position. Many people think Moro was doggedly pursuing the historic compromise and coming up against a hard wall of resistance by the center-right, but in fact he sided with Fanfani in closing down the historic compromise proposal as it stood because losing the support of the Social Democrats and Socialists meant suicide for his government. This is another of those fascinating incidents where you see Fanfani and Moro converging, even though they were effectively on opposite sides of the party line. I think the outcome of the National Council was sort of deflating for Moro, who always had in mind the rapturous progress of a full democratic state. He sought complete inclusion, but also realized that the inclusion of one, at least at this point, also meant the exclusion of another. A few months later, over breakfast, he told Andreotti, quote, we walk up the ladder one rung at a time, in reference to his belief that, quote, we need to find a formula for parliamentary involvement of the Pechei, but it's not a crisis yet. So by this point, Moro's trying to resign from government. He had sort of given up for the time being, really, uh, but he was still working. And in late July, Moro signs the Helsinki Act for Italy. This is a massive thing because it helped him fulfill that part of European and indeed global integration that was one of his highest ideals. He felt like a real international leader here, and even Andreotti would approve. In his diary, Andreotti wrote, quote, The document has an extraordinary juridical, diplomatic, and psychological value. There's no precedent of agreements signed jointly by all European states with the addition of the United States and Canada. This relief already gives a historical significance to the event, the political diversity, belonging to a block or to the area of the so-called non-aligned, the legacy of ancient and modern grievances. Everything has been overcome when we put together the research of a platform for peaceful coexistence. The topics that have been worked on in these long years of preparation already demonstrate the importance of the negotiation and explain the slowness in proceeding with the definition of the regulatory principles of the new relations between states, sovereign equality, 
no recourse to threats or use of force, inviolability of borders, peaceful settlements of disputes, non-intervention in internal affairs, respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, including freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, equality of rights and self-determination of peoples, cooperation between states, fulfillment in good faith of obligations under international law. That Moro's center-left political humanism appeared to be gaining general acceptance represented a massive triumph for the beleaguered lawmaker, and gave him a shot in the arm during very difficult times. He was still prime minister, but something sometimes it didn't seem like it. His governing style was interesting, almost more like a minister without portfolio, covering a range of issues, but also often giving his own followers free reign to vote however they wanted. His governing style was incredibly flexible, which I think marked the way that he sought consensus and facilitation. Of course, this is the way that he had to move, because his essential coalition partner at this point was the Republican Party under Hugo Lamalfa, by no means a left-wing dreamer. But at the beginning of 1976, the socialists withdrew confidence. The excuse would be that Moro's close relationship to the Communist Party had brought them to rescind their support for the center-left formula, leading to the collapse of Moro's government after just a year and a half. However, even the center-right Christian Democrats secretly believed that the socialists had shot themselves in the foot. They were acting crazy, whittling away their own support and fumbling the ball to the other side. For his part, Moro handled it extremely gracefully, commending La Malfa and declaring, In these 13 months, we have fulfilled our duty. Perhaps due in part to the grace with which he took his defeat, Moro was entrusted to preside over the vote for a new government. His vision, in the words of Andreotti, was not, quote, of the center-left, but of a democratic coalition in harmony with the needs of the times. Yet to ensure this, he went to the Communist Party, asking for its support without permitting them to rise to government. The Socialist Party actually came around at this point, agreeing to a two-party coalition to put Moro back into office. But then he added the Republican Party to the coalition mix to ensure a democratic front. This rankled the Socialists, who called Moro's surprise move the result of, quote, imprecision and sloppiness. Increasingly, Moro's being seen as a politicker, someone who says one thing to get himself at the table, and then once he's there, he offers something else. On the other hand, Andreotti was actually impressed. He wrote in his diary, quote, The socialists are breaking up with Moro very annoyed, Ancora tells me. The solution to the crisis is still on the high seas. After long and widespread preaching on the importance of contents with respect to formulas, we see the attention of the political world concentrated precisely on the latter. Moro's fertile inventiveness in this regard is not really in short supply. Difficult situations, even monetary ones, push one to nervously solicit a conclusion. But it's not the days or weeks that count. The essential thing is that a living and vital ministerial creature emerges. What a moralist thing to say right here. It's not the days or weeks that count. The essential thing is the political result. This is exactly Moro's way of thinking and acting. Whereas Andreotti noted 
journalists report a harsh contrast that there would have been between Moro and me. He would, th- he would also add, unfortunately, the lack of an official account of the work allows these truly imaginative reconstructions. For Moro, the strange and confusing thing was the amount of pressure being put on him by his own party, not animus between himself and Andreotti. He told his friend, Ariosto, of the Social Democrats, quote, I think maybe I'm wrong, but the DC is betting only on me. While the press was hyping up his conflict with Andreotti in government, he saw the Christian Democrats as turning to him to allay all the contradictions and create a workable resolution to the crisis. Meanwhile, the DC's own newspaper, Il Popolo, declared that Moro was being lynched. <laughs> It's true that many in the D.C. didn't like Moro. Carlo Donat Catin, for example, thought of him as servile, flattering, and unctuous. But within the party, he was also clearly the guy capable of forming unity. By the middle of the year, Moro was forced again to leave office, this time for good. He was dismayed by the tumultuous times. The right-wing press continually called him a communist. The left-wing press circulated rumors about his hateful relationship with Andreotti. The socialists, it seemed, had moved on from the center-left formula, while his idea of a grand democratic coalition had sort of fallen short. But there was some reason for hope. A new generation of socialists under Bettino Craxi were less unyielding than the old guard led by Pietro Neni. Moro felt like, even out of power, he could help stabilize the government and bring people together. Andreotti wrote in his diary on July 11th, quote, Moro explicitly told me this morning that he does not think of continuing to preside over the government and believes that I should succeed him, fine-tuning the dialogue with the other parties that I carried out during my presidency of the D.C. group in the chamber. It's essential to involve the communists in some way, also because the socialists will make it a sine qua non. And this moment must be managed. I don't like the word much. By someone like me who doesn't give rise to equivocal interpretations at home and abroad. For Moro, this all went back to the human spirit as sublimated in an energy of love. Quote, I'm thinking of the immense web of love that unites the world of authentic religious experiences, of well-ordered families, of generous outbursts of young people, of active forms of solidarity with the marginalized, of the moving attachment of workers to their work, he wrote to Il Giorno in 1977. If Andreotti's government could bring together a deeper, fuller consensus, if it could assuage the fears internationally, then Mora would not obstruct it. Soon after, though, West German Chancellor Schmidt published a declaration on behalf of the G7 summit in Puerto Rico, cautioning against concessions with the Communist Party in Italy. This was again taken as a serious blow to Moro, who returned to Italy with an air of defeat. On October 10th, the DC voted him president of the party, but he refused to accept it, making the excuse that too many blank ballots had been passed and he couldn't be morally obliged to serve as president of a party that didn't fully support him. The DC voted again and he's elected with a sound majority, 165 votes out of a possible 183. But the Lockheed scandal was now all anyone could think about. 
Stormy waters were assailing the Christian Democrats. The party closed ranks, protecting its own. If anyone had been concerned that Moro's moral compass would have pointed towards significant and immediate action, they were assured by his speech on March 9th when he told the assembly that D.C. will not let itself be tried in the piazzas. A guy who had stood in support of the social movements of the 1970s now abruptly stood against them, declaring serious rejection of the movement to oust the centrists from power. Moro's speech gave the D.C. the reassurances it needed, but it also disillusioned a lot of his supporters on the left in Italian society. Moro was known as a man who took some cues from the masses, but also had an inborn sense of right and wrong. Here, he was standing unapologetically in support of a crumbling and corrupt regime, or so the powerful extra-parliamentary movement said. Those who once looked at Moro with great sympathy now saw him as the most important cog in the machine. Two days later, police shot and killed the young activist Francesco LaRusso in the streets of Bologna, and war was declared in Italy. Aldo Moro hadn't given up on his beliefs, but he hadn't given up on his party either. He was, perhaps, prepared to go down with the ship, because in his mind, and the mind of the majority of Christian Democrats, their party was essential to the Italian Republic itself, almost synonymous with it. While Moro appreciated the changes of Italian society, his strategy of attention did not promote uncritical plaudits for the ultra-left. He could be, at times, supremely practical statesman, even if his ideals, values, principles shined a bit more brightly than the others. But 1977 was a crisis year for many reasons, and when we come back next episode, I'll talk about the political turmoil in Parliament that overflowed into 1978, the attitude of Kissinger toward the historic compromise, and Moro's decisive intervention in favor of the government, just before his horrifying kidnapping by the Red Brigades. This has been the Morocast, the years of Lead Pod, actually. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>